You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Sup, everybody? It's episode 114 of the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, brought to you by GameMat.eu and our Patreon sponsors. I am so happy to have both of them on board. Thank you for supporting the show. So, the topics we have tonight are Real Talk with the Pimpcron. Um, I need new sneakers, and I live in the Imperium. Where is the next Payless Shoes? That's what I want to know. Do they have shopping malls in 40k? And what other... How else does this life exist? The, the economy and all that stuff. How does the average person live in 40k in the Imperium? We have a Tesseract mailbox from Fergie, and uh, he gives me some criticism on the podcast, which is always welcome. I don't take things too seriously, and it's very easy to get tunnel vision, and you think everything you do is great, and a lot of times it's not. That's kind of like the uh, Catch-22 there. So that's the secret to being self-aware, is realizing that probably half the stuff you do reeks. Then he also asks about um, uh, convention planning and things like that. So we, we talk, it's a long segment, we talk about a lot of stuff. Then we have a um, Want That or Want That Not with the new Necron monolith and whether we want that behemoth or we do not. What have I been up to? So I forgot to mention last week a buddy of mine that I have met exclusively through Shorehammer he was in town, we got together and had dinner, our wives and us, and it was a great time. I love Mike. Uh, he runs Burke's Winter Blast, which is a big tournament up north, and I go to that every year, and he comes to Shorehammer every year, and just another part of our extended family that we've, we we love to hang out with from Shorehammer, and uh, had a blast with him. That was last weekend. This weekend, I had my very first time ever, this um, store in, I'm going to mess up the town name, Fredrickson? I think it's Fredrickson, Virginia. It's like four hours for me. I had to drive like four hours. And um, they were having a demo day. Every day, uh, every October, they have a big demo day at their local store called Your Hobby Place. And um, they demo several different games and whatever. And of course, you know, with all the COVID restrictions and all that, they uh, figured that they maybe shouldn't run several games. Maybe they should just run Brutality because the turnout probably won't be as good as it normally would be because of the whole restrictions and all that. So, um, which is understandable. So they just ran Brutality and it was pretty cool. We had about, I think nine people show up, which was pretty cool. And, um, I was very excited to meet all of them. Um, uh, Jirhan and Momo and Bryant and a bunch of other people. And, um, they were all very, very nice. And it's always one of those things where you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm jumping headfirst into this group of people and I don't know how they're going to be. And, you know, us nerds in general can be awkward or, or, off-putting because, you know, we're socially awkward or whatever, but everybody was very, very nice. I could not ask for a nicer group of people, which of course is not necessarily a guarantee whenever you're jumping into a group you don't know. But um, I got three games of Brutality in, so we played it all afternoon and I had a blast and they are actually starting a, a store campaign, which is very exciting to hear. And I was actually shocked at how well they knew the rules. There were, of course, a couple clarifications, things like that, but they knew the Brutality rules really well. So I got three games in, and um, my first game I lost seven to four, I think. And then my second game I lost seven to five, and um, it all came down to could I kill her leader? And if I could kill her leader, 
I would get two victory points and it would tie it. But I had an ordnance guy with a missile launcher on top of this building and I shot at her twice. Totally did not kill her leader. Then I had my monster run over there. I had a big shark. Monster ran over there. Totally did not kill her leader. I mean, it was against all odds that her leader survived, but she did survive. So I could not tie that game up, unfortunately. And um, then my third game, I actually tied 7-7. Seven to seven. So that was a real nail-biter. We um, had a certain format where we had four upgraded models and then a monster. So um, it was really cool. We had a really cool monster battle. He had this big, like, gecko frog-looking monster, and I had my shark monster. And uh, they ended up, I would charge him, we'd hurt each other, bounce off. He'd charge me, hurt each other, bounce off. I'd charge him again. I mean, it really felt some cinematic. It really felt like a slugfest between two big monsters. It was really good. And uh, so I had a, a total blast with them. And uh, so we decided to make this like a little vacation. Just a two-day, spend the night over there in a hotel and all that. I brought the kids and the wife. And uh, it was pretty funny because I'd like to just start out by saying... What are the odds? Just just without even knowing what I'm talking about, just just what are the odds? The odds are not good. We decided, because we always like hiking, we like being outdoors and, and walking and all that, we decided that we would go to a hiking trail. And that's really cool. So it's in the mountains and all that, we go to a hiking trail. So we did that, and when we pull up, I shit you not, the sign said... <laughs> Wait, let me just read this sign to you. I took a picture of it. We had no idea when we pulled up here that this sign says danger, possible unexploded ordinance. Stay on marked trail. Do not touch suspect items. Report any suspect item to blah, blah, blah. Can you? Oh, my God. I laughed so hard. We pulled up and I'm like, unexploded ordinance. Good God. Why do we keep doing this? Why do we keep picking places that have unexploded ordnance or bombing fields. Why do we do this to ourselves? And uh, it did happen to be right next to a military base. So I guess at some point before it was a nature preserve, it was a place where they would test test bombs or missiles or artillery. And uh, it's just so funny that we just did the whole bear place, and that was a bombing range. And then we come to this place, which did not have bears, I will tell you. But then we started joking that, you know, further down the trail, there's a sign that says, like, pistol beavers. Watch out for the pistol beavers. Or the, um, you know, machete bears on dirt bikes or something like that. Like, it's just... <laughs> Mountain lion skateboarders with uh, hacksaws. Uh, just just whatever. We're talking about sniper owls. And we that joke went on for quite some time. Because it's just like, okay, we got we got potential bombs here. Um, of course, the trails were super nice and all that, so that's not a big deal. Um, so we just stayed on the trails. We decided that, you know what? Stepping on a landmine or something, I'm not going to do that. Um, I actually told my buddy Leroy Jenkins, who's a, a listener to the show, I sent him that picture and I was like, look, if you don't hear back from me, if there's no podcast posted on Monday, uh, we exploded some ordnance. <laughs> so <laughs> just letting you know. Uh, so we had a great time there, a great time with the family. And that's about it. This last week before doing this on our regular Warhammer night, I played my friend Matt. And by golly, I can't even remember those games. So much has happened in the last week that um, I don't remember what happened with Brutality. Oh, one thing, which is funny. I was playing my uh, my Borg Hive, and Borg from Star Trek, and um, I had two. I had a Pistolier and I had a Sentry. They both have ranged weapons. They've got guns. And lo and behold, Matt runs his monster in 
and he goes after my sentry first, and lo and behold, he does trauma to him and breaks my guy's weapon. So he can't shoot. You know, the unit I brought that could shoot, yeah, he can't shoot the rest of this game. Okay, that's exciting. So then he goes over and charges my pistolier and also breaks her weapons. So now she can't shoot. So the first game, I had two people that could not shoot at all. My only two ranged people couldn't shoot. Then the second game we played, he did it again to my pistolier with another model. He broke her weapons again. It was just, it was a craziness. It was really crazy. We were laughing so hard at that. Um, and I really don't remember the scores of that, but I'm going to stop yammering on now. Um, so anyway, thanks again um, for Momo and um, uh, Jerhan for having me at your hobby place in Virginia. And I think I'm going to probably try to reach out to a couple more stores and do this sort of thing with demo days. That'd be really cool. And it's a good ex excuse to just go take a, you know, a, a one night vacation with the family and go hike in the next day or whatever. So I might be doing that. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it. If you want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash pimpcron. And let's get on with this show. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. On the Tesseract mailbox, we have another letter from our friend Fergie. The Fergalicious writes, Ha ha ha, you fool. By getting you to admit you were wrong on the internet, I now have completed the final part of the dread ritual. Soon I will draw your very soul into my newly painted overlord, painted with a colorful selection of humid fluids, and you'll be forced to battle on my tabletop forever. By utilizing the raw power of your soul in my games, I will surely be unstoppable. Seriously, though, thanks for replying to my question. It was not my intention to ruin your day. Well, number one, uh, fuck you, Fergie. Uh, number two, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, so I wrote, I wrote back and said that my soul is 80% sass, 5% nickel. So uh, jokes on him that he's not going to get an awesome material for his uh, his soul fueled overlord, I guess. And then I said, hey, you know what? Uh, being that I've got you here. Being that we're talking, I actually don't have a Tesseract mailbox for this week anyway. So, you got anything else to say, since I got you on the line? And he emailed me back and said, Drat, foiled again. I guess I'll have to try again with Goat Boy instead. Wasn't planning on offering criticism, so this is just off the top of my head. You already know this, but your podcast works so well because it is timeless with no meta-chasing nonsense. The variety of topics is great, although I'm glad you've left the lore-related stuff behind as it wasn't your strong suit. I actually really enjoy when your eldest kid is on. He's a lot of fun, but I don't think the younger ones are best suited to it. Your general irrelevant tone is also fun. I'd like to hear more about Shorehammer and the organization that goes into it. What are your guidelines for how much terrain a table needs, and how do you lay it out? Whew, that is a lot of stuff, Fergie. Okay, so number one, uh, don't go after Goat Boy. He's a serious flirt. He'll break your heart. I emailed you that. You know it. So just don't even try. Um, I've been down that road, and it's, it's rough. So uh, besides that, he is offering criticism that my podcast is timeless. I appreciate that. And my oldest son does well, or actually my only son, my oldest kid does well on the podcast, but the other ones are not as well suited to it. Yeah, I would say I probably agree with you. The problem is, is that my um, my daughters, you know, they see him on the podcast occasionally. 
so it's they ask me to be on and what do I say like no sort of thing you know how it is with kids probably and um the uh the th- three of four does a pretty good job in my opinion of course I'm biased I'm her dad blah 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 but she does a pretty good job she's usually a firecracker and has some off the wall thing to say so I appreciate that like when she asked about what why are there no cheerleaders for sisters of battle or something like that so um I'm I'm kind of on the fence with the with the agreeance in that, but definitely my oldest would probably do the best job on that. And um, he likes my irrelevant tone. And okay, so you want to hear about Shorehammer organization and how it goes into it? Well, that is a doozy. That actually could probably be its own segment completely, talking about the organization of a convention. Um, so actually, that's probably a good idea for a whole segment. Um, so I will give you the footnotes for that. Number one, obviously, you are limited by your venue, and you need to figure out a venue that is, number one, affordable, and number two, will meet your demands. So if you're not actually talking about the organization of a convention, per se, if you're just talking about, like, a tournament or whatever, but you want to go a little bigger than the average store or tournament, you will definitely want to... Um, look out for public places where you can have a tournament. For instance, fire halls. Now you're going to get laughed because a lot of firemen are kind of macho men. They're going to laugh at what you're doing. But if you can take that verbal abuse, a lot of fire halls will rent out their space, or especially if you've got a buddy in the volunteer fire department or something like that, they will let you use their giant bays for whatever events. Um, I've been to many different events, charity events and things like that, raffles and whatever. I mean, for crying out loud, I even vote in our local volunteer fire department. Like, my assigned place to vote is the volunteer fire department. So they even let that out for the as a polling place. Another good place, and this may sound weird, it was actually originally the first place that we were planning on having Shorehammer until we decided that we wanted to go all in and make it a bigger event was a local church. If you don't have a buddy in the volunteer fire department, or maybe your volunteer fire department does not have a, a big bay or they're not willing to let you do that with your toy models, um, and the next thing would be is a church. Um, my grandparents are, you know, part of a church and they're very invested in and all that and they know people. So they would have given us a really good price on their like their uh, eating hall whatever you call that like the cafeteria of a church some churches have really big food areas with all sorts of tables you know where they can cater weddings and things like that Um, not all churches obviously but luckily the local church we had that my grandparents are part of actually had a lot of table space so now we were going to have to fib just a bit on that and kind of downplay the whole instance of, I don't know, demons and Dark Eldar raping people and stuff. I just kind of download that stuff. Downplay it, I mean, not download it. Um, just talk about, you know, the valiant hero humans and whatever. Oh, those silly orcs, they love the fight. Yeah, focus on all that stuff if you're going to go after a church. And... um or like a VFW, or any of those common places. Matter of fact, even some libraries. We're fortunate enough to have all these things around here. Uh, our libraries, a couple of them have a large, large, large meeting spaces. And a lot of like, I don't know, AA groups or other types of meetings will happen in these areas. And a lot of times libraries won't charge you anything for the venue. That You just have to sign up, you have to be a card-carrying member of the library, and such and such. And of course you have to 
mark it off on the calendar well in advance, but they will just let you use it. Now, as far as actually gaming, I don't know. I did not look into it, but I'm sure it would go... It would vary between library to library. Whoever is the manager of that library is going to give you a different point of view on that. So, um, your venue is a big deal. That is going to be your limiting factor for capacity and all of that. Your second limiting factor, and potentially the first one, of course, is how many tables can I cover in terrain? And how much terrain do we want? Which kind of ties into your other question of how much terrain is good for a build uh, table and where to put it. But uh, I'll skip that for the moment. Um, you need plenty of terrain. We painted a shit ton of terrain for Shorehammer, and every year we add to it. Every year we add to it. And um, I bought a bunch of game at EU terrain this year, and uh, luckily that's pre-painted, so I didn't have to paint that. But also a bunch of 3D printed terrain from Panhandle 3D, which is another one of our sponsors for the uh, the convention as well. And that actually should be to me in the next week or so, and I'll get priming and painting on all that. And uh, so you're probably going to have to beef up whatever your terrain capacity is. Maybe get some friends to donate some terrain for use just for the event. You know, put uh, Bliggity Blam Steve does probably 70% of our terrain at Shorehammer. And I do the other 30% because he's a, a philanthropist in the wargaming world. And he's got every terrain set ever known to man. So uh, he lets me use his stuff. But him and I also, like, we both own Game at EU train sets and things like that that are identical. So what we usually have to do is mark them, you know, put a, well, S and S wouldn't work, but um, like a B for his last name and a W for mine or whatever um, on stickers underneath each thing just to make sure you don't get them messed up. Also, you're going to need a lot of mats. Now, the cheap, the poor man's way of doing a mat is by huge bolts of cloth that are, like, greenish with... um. Before I ever owned any mats, actually, I've played before mats existed. So what I used to do for that is I found green bolts of cloth at Walmart for, I don't know, 30 cents a square yard or something. And they had little like leaf patterns on them. And it actually worked really well for grass. So what you could do is go online or go to Walmart or a fabric store and buy a crap ton of these bolts of cloth. And you could pretty much make it work. Now, it's only three feet wide because it's a yard. But you can you can definitely make it work, even if you had to overlap them or whatever, um, if you're going to go the cheap route. Of course, we luckily have been able to invest heavily in mats. Good God, I own... Uh, man, now the, the terrain is mostly Steve's, but the mats are actually mostly mine. So I own like 40 game mat EU mats. Like I've, I've bought a shit ton of mats. And um, then Steve has like 12 or 15 or something, and that makes up all of our mats for the entire place. Another thing you might want to mention, uh, I-, I might want to mention, not you, you're not, you're not giving this speech, okay, Fergie? Uh, another thing you might want to mention is, th- I just said it again, how stupid am I? Another thing I might want to mention is that the table size, you may not want to go with a 6x4. Like at Shorehammer, we don't. We go with a 4x4. So that actually gives you three boards out of two mats versus two games out of two mats. And uh, that helps with um, table space and all that. So our, our tournaments are slightly smaller. But actually, it was the other way around. We didn't do it because of the, um, you know, getting three tables out of two mats. We actually did the 4x4 because I like quicker, faster games. I don't like 2,000-point tournaments. I like 1250 or 1500 point tournaments. 
So our Highlander's 1250, our AOS GT is um, uh, 1500. And those really suit themselves better to a 4x4 rather than a 4x6, because you feel like you're kind of spread out. If you're, if you're under 1500 points, a 4x6 can get kind of spacey. Um, so we like to make all the action, you know, right up close and personal and get people fighting. So we decided to go with 4x4s, and after that I was like, oh, that's a save in space. So I, I only need technically, what, one-third fewer mats than I would if I needed uh, 6x4. And um, what is something else? Well, man, there's... I can't begin to tell you the amount of planning that goes behind Shorehammer. I mean, think about it from my standpoint. You need everything from trophies, and I buy... Man, I just made my order for trophies. Uh, we have 54 trophies, I think, we give out. It's like uh, $1,200 or something in trophies. It's like a ridiculous price in trophies. And um, so we we have a bunch of uh, trophies we give away, and uh, we have to order all that. And just going through that every year, making sure, okay, the Highlander, we have a heavyweight and a cruiserweight circuit. So the Highlander heavyweight, I've got the belt, I've got the trophy number second place, i got the trophy for third place. Okay, the cruiserweight, I got the trophy for first and second and third and make sure the date's right on all of them and whatever. It's just craziness. Then, then something that nobody knows about running an event is that the bajillion emails that you get about, oh, hey, can I change my order? Whoops, I bought this twice, didn't mean to. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to do this painting category and not another painting category or whatever. And truly, I'm not really complaining about that because that's just doing business, but it is a huge time. I would, I would be willing to bet twenty percent of the orders um, get changed at some point. Maybe twenty five percent. They all get changed at some point, and um, so that's a whole part time job there, emailing and whatever. Not to mention you've got a million questions. Um, you've got oh, can I do this? Does this kit bash? Does this qualify? Can I do this? What about this supplement? Blah 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 blah, and. Um, so that is a constant job as well. Then you got to keep up on all the rules and all that stuff. Now, luckily, I have Just James for that. Just James is my head of game mastering and the head of rules and all that at Shorehammer. And he's the head judge, actually. And um, he keeps pretty well up with all the rules. Of course, I don't think a single one of us play with all of the rules accurately. But he, he knows far more rules than I do. And luckily, Shorehammer is a pretty friendly place. I mean, it's actually a super friendly place. So if somebody asks me some weird-ass question that I don't know, and Bliggity Blam doesn't know, and Just James doesn't know, and none of our other friends know, then we usually go to two-time Highlander champion Andrew, and uh, we'll ask him, because he's part of our gaming group anyway, and we know him. And uh, we're like, hey, Andrew, do you know the answer to this? Or usually you'll get several people chime in. They hear the conversation and they're like, oh, uh, this is the resolution for that. And all you need is a you know consensus of four different players from different tables all saying the same thing where you're like, OK, this is the way we're doing it. Um, so just James before the tournament has to read all the FAQs and try to freshen up on everything and make sure that, oh, not to mention, you got to check all their lists. So people send in lists and, uh, you know, obviously the closer to the event they turn in the lists, the more complicated it gets because you're like, oh God, I got all these lists. And if there's an issue, like they made a mistake, then they've probably painted their list to, you know, to play. So then you got to be like, oh, you got to change this unit or take out this or whatever. 
Then you've got to add it all up. You have to put it all in Battlescribe or hand calculate it. We usually use Battlescribe because it's generally accurate. And we have to re-add up all the points for all the lists, which is also, that is a freaking nightmare, to be honest with you. We got 60-some people in our Highlander. Uh, we limit it to 60-some because there's other events. Like, the Highlander's not the only event, so we only limit it to 60-some. And um, the AOS one is like 30 people, I think it is, and all that. So you've got you got 60, 60 lists to go over in Highlander. You got 30-some for the AOS GT. Then you've got 30-some um, for the Danger Zone, which is a 40k tournament that we have. Uh, then you've got your X-Wing tournaments. Then you've got your Underworld tournaments. Then you've got your uh, Kill Teams tournament this year. And then you've got your Brutality tournament. And you just... Whew! It is a lot. I gotta tell you, there's a ton of background stuff, and nobody actually knows this, but I am 99% of everything. Like, I, I send out all the emails, I do all the tickets, I order all the t-shirts, I design the logos, I design the t-shirts, I order the trophies, I order the prizes, I get up with the sponsors, I um, I made the website, I do the venue, I've got the contract, I rent the couches, I literally, I do 100% of everything. Um, like, Bliggity Blam is helpful because he shows up the day of, and we use all his terrain. That's nice. And, um, Just James is good for rules. That's nice. But as far as the actual operations of it, it's entirely me. And, um, I know, I, I, now, you know, in the summer, I've got, like, 14 employees. So I know how to manage people, and I know that most of the time, people don't give a shit. So, and I actually had a friend whose, uh, con tournament he was running kind of failed because... He was relying on volunteers to do things and wasn't like super closely watching them. And then they didn't do the job they were supposed to. And then his whole thing kind of fell apart. So you really, really can only trust yourself in most cases. And that is the honest truth. So you got to if you're going to run an event like that, you got to really, really focus on doing everything yourself and only relying on yourself because you'll get a million people at the last minute go oh sorry i can't volunteer or whoops i forgot to do the trivia questions or whatever Whew. so i think i've given you enough to think about uh certainly there is man i've probably covered 10 percent of running a convention it is actually a lot of work but um, and I do it for free. I, I make no money off this. It is all, all the money goes back into the convention in, you know, the banners and the backdrops and the more mats from Game at EU and more terrain and, and just all that stuff. I just constantly reinvest, reinvest in the convention because I love it. It is honestly the highlight of my year every single year. I get to see all my buddies come down from New York and Virginia and North Carolina and PA and just everywhere. And it's it's a really really great time. So it's it's um it's well worth it. All this hassle and all of that to have made such a successful and friendly event where everybody likes to go to it and everybody makes friends. And it's really cool because you know I add to my friends list every single year on Facebook because these people are so nice and it's really cool. So it is definitely worth it if you're willing to put in that much effort. Um. But it is a shit ton of effort. I just want to let you know that. If you're thinking about doing that, it is a ton of effort. Then there's, of course, the, the chance that nobody shows up. So we only had 36 people or something on our first Shorehammer. So, I mean, you know, that first Shorehammer, I lost money the first two years because of all the overhead and not selling enough tickets and all that. I actually lost money. And so, you know, obviously the difference came out of my personal pocket. So not only 
was I doing it for free, but then it actually physically cost me money out of my pocket. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, it's just that we didn't have the ticket sales to cover all the costs. That was just simply what it is. And I had a vision. I wanted to do my convention my way, and that's that. So um, now, of course, now we're in the we're in the black, which is nice, and we can reinvest in the next year. But it is just one of those labors of love that you know. What do you do? You're not going to make money off it. But if you enjoy organizing, making friends, and all that, that is something that you can do, and you will not be sorry, probably. <laughs> okay, this is going on far too long. Uh, I will give you my quick and dirty rules for putting terrain out there. If you are playing on a 4x6 board, I'm assuming you are, or whatever stupid combination of numbers they've decided is the minimum size for a board in 40k now, what I do is I guarantee that I start with 3 to 4 large line of sight blocking objects in the center, usually buildings or something like that. Line of sight blocking is the big deal. Even though we have partial rules now for, you know, partial line of sight and whatever, the line of sight blocking is the big deal. So I will put three to four, usually four, depending on how large the train is, four line of sight blocking things down the middle. And then in between, you know, kind of like a, if you had a person standing on your deployment zone in between the, let me think of like, if he was lined up in your deployment zone between two of these line of sight blocking train pieces and he could see all the way to my side, I will usually put a piece of terrain there and then a piece of terrain there on my side as well. So essentially, every time you have a gap in terrain, fill that gap on either side so that you've got decisions to make and things like that. So I've said before, like as far as game at EU terrain, um, their terrain sets are are perfectly fine for 4x4. And any terrain set you buy um, from, from any of the companies, but game at EU I have a lot of um, experience with. They are perfectly fine terrain sets for a 4x4. They end up, in my opinion... Now, I like a lot of terrain, so there's a caveat there. But in my opinion, I would prefer to have two of their terrain sets if I'm doing a 4x6. Otherwise, it looks a little bit sparse. But, you know, their their prices are reasonable enough. It doesn't really matter. Um, but the... Uh, and the way I see people play terrain, dude... I mean, they, they will... They have, like, four buildings on the field... And that is totally not enough. If you must do that, then take your four buildings and split them down the middle. Because you need that line of sight blocking. You need to make decisions. If an enemy's coming from your left, then you can run right around the building. Or something like that. You've got decisions to make. Your melee people have places to hide. Your shooting people have alleys of fire. You know, like death valleys of, of uh, whatever it's called. Dead zones of fire. Um... So, definitely, I tend to do that. Now, I don't know if you meant specifically uh, terrain for tournaments. I'm not even going to get into that right now. But um, the layout I would normally do is start with the line of sight blocking in the center and then fill all those gaps on both sides evenly so that people have to make decisions. The problem that GW seems to have now is that they feel like, oh, strategy comes from a shit ton of rules. No, it does not. Strategy comes from using your models effectively, and the rules just give you more options. That's great. Is I would love to ask GW, is chess not strategic? Because I gotta tell you, it's been like 400,000 years, and chess has never had an FAQ. They've never came out with a supplement. They've never, I mean, they just chess is chess, and it's a very 
highly tactical, highly strategy, you know, driven game. And they don't have a billion rules. It's very clear, cut and dry. So that's an example right there that strategy is how you use the pieces. It's not how complex the interactions are between pieces. So it's the same thing with terrain. Terrain, you want to force people to make choices. If Let's go to the extreme here. And I think this is the longest Tesseract mailbox I've ever done for crying out loud. But if you want to go to extremes, put nothing on the table and tell me how many choices you have. My uh, my melee guys run straight forward because there's nothing to hide behind. Yeah, and uh, my shooting guys just shoot. They they just they shoot. Wow, that's that's highly tactical. Not at all. Put some freaking terrain down. As far as like um brutality goes, and this is the last thing I'm gonna say before I let you go on this segment. Brutality, I you need in a skirmish game. You need lots and lots of terrain. So this is even. The way I like terrain, cranked up to 11. What we do is we cover half of the entire board with terrain that is touching each other. And then we spread it all out across the rest of the board. So you are talking about highly densely packed. I mean, usually you want every terrain piece to be within six inches of at least two other terrain pieces. I mean, highly dense things. And that causes the game to be so much more strategic. You know, your shooters can't just shoot blatantly. They have to move and shoot and and look through stuff, and your melee people can hide and skirmish and all that. So just remember, the terrain is a huge part of strategy, and it's not just rules bloat like we're seeing in 9th edition. So thank you, Fergie. I appreciate you writing in. And um, by the way, guys, you know, this is the last letter we got in the Test Track mailbox, so I need you all to write in or call the voicemail that is at in the text of every single one of these episodes. No one ever calls it. And I'm going to let you go. Let's get to the next segment. Want that or want that not? On today's Want That or Want That Not, we're discussing the new Necron monolith for Warhammer 40k. In case you didn't know what a Necron monolith was, you idiot. All right, so... The monolith is already, obviously, a model that has always existed for a long time. At one time, here's a little bit of history for you. The Necron monolith, the old model, was the largest plastic model that GW made at one time. And you can kind of tell, it's uh, a lot of times when you're assembling an old monolith. I've assembled three in my life, I believe. And uh, when you're assembling them, they didn't really go that well together. Sometimes you'd get side panels that were warped or whatever, and... Eh, you could definitely see it was dated. I think, actually, it probably didn't need to be updated. It looked well enough, like la-di-da, right? But they updated it, and I had no say in it. I warned them. I warned them. If you update that thing, so help me God. But they did it anyway. So, the monolith for Necrons is a pretty cool-looking model, I think. The new model. And, um, it's got, like... Picture the old monolith. I'm sure you've seen this anyway, but we're going to play this game with you, okay? Picture the old monolith. It had some raised panels, things like that, but it was basically a box that was slightly more like a 3D uh, trapezoid, which uh, parallelogram of the circumference arithmetic. And (laughs) it had four turrets, one in each corner. It had the big stupid-ass ring-pop gem in the middle, and uh, it had like these kind of wavy things that came up to it. And it had the plastic portal, which served its purpose, the Port of Exile or whatever it's called, the Exile Ray. And, um, you know, it 
pretty cool for for its time, for its age. And like I said, I don't know that it needed to really be updated, but uh, the new one is essentially that same model. Essentially, there are some new weapon options on the corners, which is pretty cool. And they replaced the giant ass ring pop gem with a ball that looks like Epcot Center. And that is also pretty cool. I think I like this ball way more than I did the ring pop gem. So I will come out and say that. Also, they've pretty greatly improved the Portal of Exile or whatever that's called. The place where people come out of it, the Necrons. And instead of just like this little green plastic plate with some ripples on it, they actually have like these energy things um, going across them, energy beams, crackling, whatever. And I think they've done a really, really good job with that in this whole new product line from the Void Dragon on. If they do any sort of energy or crackling energy, they've done a really good job modeling that. It looks sturdy. It doesn't look real finicky like you're going to break it to pieces. And they've done a really good job of making this look neat because there's a half-materialized Necron warrior coming out of it. It's not a full model. It is, you know, just like his upper half, and then there's a gap, and then his legs coming out of another beam, and it's really, really cool looking. I absolutely love it. There's another really cool thing about this, is that on the back of it, you know how the Tesseract Vault, one of them, has like these, it looks like a wraith, but it's not a wraith. It's like some sort of tomb spider sort of thing, um, a Canoptex spider, I guess they're called. Uh, Canoptic spiders on the sides of them, like feeding on them or maybe giving them energy or whatever. Well, now they've incorporated one of those that is um, like humping the Epcot ball and it's got its tail wrapped around the back of the, the monolith. And that is also a really nice touch. I like that it ties in with all the obelisk and all that other stuff. Very, very cool. So, so far I got nothing bad to say about this thing. And, uh, you know, if you want to say, like I was talking about the raised edges before on all the sides, it has some raised edges. It has more raised edges than before. Um, I guess that makes it look better. It doesn't It doesn't really knock my britches off necessarily. But overall, I have to admit, this model is definitely an improvement over the old one. But like I said, I'm not sure they really even needed to do an improvement on the old one. It was passable, but whatever. So if we weren't getting so other many new units with all the Scorpec destroyers and all that... I would have said that they definitely could have put the energy from remodeling this into a new unit, but God knows we got so many new units, it's really not an issue, so I'm not that worried with it. Overall, it does look like an enhanced, bigger, better version of it, with more weapon options and all that. Here's where my caveats come in. It is a Lord of War, which I totally think is a misstep. We already have several Lords of War. I truly, especially with the Silent King, that's another Lord of War. I truly don't think the monolith needed to be a Lord of War. Make it some badass heavy support, which is what it was intended to be originally, and there was a time when it was all armor 14 and it was pretty nasty in previous editions, but then it kind of lost its nastiness over the editions, and it's been kind of like a paperweight for a long time. So, if you're going to make a new model and all that, just make it a really cool, make me be able to bring three of them, if, if I mean, I wouldn't, but... Um, let me bring three of them if I wanted, three heavy support slots or whatever. And, uh, I really, really think that was a misstep to make that a Lord of War. And that's my first issue with it. My second issue with it is the price. Good God, $170 for this thing. What was the old one? 80? 
Like it's a it's a huge huge, and I know it's almost funny for to hear me complain about prices from GW, but good God, man, a hundred and seventy dollars. This cannot be much larger than an Imperial Knight, and an Imperial Knight's what one twenty five, one fifty. I mean, it's and this is one seventy. Good God. So what I'm happy about, and this is gonna piss GW off, but you know I don't care, is that uh, my friend TJ actually was able to print me a really cool monolith proxy. It doesn't look just like a monolith. It's actually highly stylized, and we found it online. And um, I found it online for free. And uh, it's a really cool, like, diamond-shaped monolith. It's very obviously a monolith. It's got the portal, it's got the guns, it's got the gem up top, all that. But it is slightly smaller, and it actually does hover and all that. So I'm very happy that I had just recently, in within the last year, sold my monolith I had, and got him to print me this new version, just because I'm revamping the whole army, selling a lot of my old stuff. So I'm happy now that I sold that, because even though there this is a new model, I do not like this model enough to buy it, and I'm happy with the one he made me anyway. So, uh, so I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna pretend that I don't already have monolith, okay? And I'm gonna say that I, uh, Hmm. So the model's really cool. I like the model, definite improvement, but the price really sticks in my crawl, as the kids say nowadays. So it's a $170. I don't think, I honestly don't think I would spend $170 for this. If this was a heavy support choice, and it was some badass heavy support choice, I mean, tough eight, three up save, 30 hit points, something like that. Kind of like the Morkonaut or Gorkonaut, where they kind of sort of should have been super heavies, but they weren't. I feel like they should have made this thing kind of sort of a super heavy, but not. So ultimately, it is a want that not for me for this monolith. I think the update aesthetically is awesome. I hate the price point, and I hate the fact that it's no longer a heavy support option. So that is a no-go for me. Luckily, I got my buddy TJ, and I got a really cool custom monolith that no one else will have. So, suck it. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pentcron. On this pleasant edition of Real Talk with the Pimpcron, I am discussing civilian life in 40k and what little we actually know about it. We've all read about the war the war-torn cities and the blasted battlefields and the crazy death worlds, but what about the local shopping mall? What about the veterinarian? What about the local VA for the Imperial Guard? What about bus stops? Do they have bus stops in civilian life in the Imperium? This curiosity came to me when I was on the rooftop deck of a building looking down at the built neighboring parking lot, and there was neatly trimmed rows of trees and shrubs and mulch outlining the intricately patterned parking lot with all the different um, curbs and cars and just all that, just a million different things. And from that viewpoint up there, it kind of looked a lot like a battlefield. Like I, I want to make a battle board out of this because this looks so cool. And, um, it's both beautiful and very interesting tactically to play on because there's so many different obstacles and the cars and all of that. There'd be a lot of lineup site blocking and, and things like that. And even though, the parking lot I was looking down on was a hotel parking lot. I got the impression that a shopping mall or something similar would be really cool in 40k as a battlefield. 
Then the thought occurred to me, do they even have shopping malls? What about landscaping companies in 40K? Do they have any of that at all? Do they have anything that we would recognize as a civilized life? Never once in my career playing this game have I ever seen a picture of an Imperium building with landscaping or curbs or anything like that. Now here's a conversion idea for you. You should make a bunch of servitors with weed whacker and hedge trimmer arms and, you know, two arms that make the the handle of a lawnmower, push mower, and things like that. It'd be pretty cool. Land, land speeders, land speeders with mower decks on them. You know that's a good idea. That would sell. I feel like just to be rude, I would program my servitors to not speak the local language. And I would change it wherever we go just to make sure that the residents are irritated. They can't communicate with them. Um, so this is essentially the school of hard knocks, I feel, given the inf information that we have about the civilian life. I can't find any official descriptions of what civilian is life is like from any sources that I have whatsoever. And it's not really something that GW would ever need to delve into when describing a galaxy at war, necessarily. Now, of course, I haven't read every single novel, but I, I have never seen anything in any rulebook or anything like that. I mean, it's, it's vague vague stories about, oh, life is crap, but there's really like, uh, okay, is it completely government or organized and controlled and things like that? Or is there actually free enterprise? Now, I sometimes I feel like, you know, there's a, this guardsman's heart sank as he peered over the trench line and across the brutal battlefield. Jimmy's shoe palace had been hit by a stray artillery shell. That was his favorite place to buy shoes. As the sorrow turned to rage, the guardsman screamed and charged the enemy with his bayonet fixed, only to burst into a red mist a moment later from an enemy round. Without Jimmy's shoe palace, there was nothing left for him to live for. That's what I feel like one of the novels should say. So I think we all understand the life of the average Imperial citizen is like life handed you a big old bowl of turd soup and said you can't get the sweet escape of death until you finish your dinner. You are nothing of value, you own nothing of value, and the Imperium actually has made rainstorm generators just to keep any ideas of relaxing on the beach out of your head, just so you have no hope whatsoever. From what I can gather, there is the official Imperium coin system that is used for interstellar trade and stuff. Then, there is probably local currency that is unique to each planet, because they don't necessarily... I mean, among the population, you know, you have whatever you can use, like orcs use teeth... Um, maybe, I don't know, Shiva 5 uses dried out mice heads as money, because God knows they would be prevalent, right? And Krillin 2 uses just eyelashes for currency. I don't know, that'd be 17 eyelashes, and then you spill your purse, and all the eyelashes go all over the floor, you're like, oh god, oh god! Or someone stabs you, give me all your fucking eyelashes! So, uh, yeah, people would be raw, oh my god, everybody would go around, like you're shortchanged. And you're like, oh man, you're at the local 7-Eleven, and you're like, oh man, I just I need another dollar, dink, out of your eyelid, and uh, just it's weird. Um, so even if your life sucks and you work for the Imperium or for free or whatever, I don't know how that works exactly. I'm sure you have means of earning the local currency by trading or just maybe good old fashioned loving strangers for money, you know. Now, that's uh, the oldest profession as it is. It also seems like you're buried under a mountain of imperial bureaucracy, but with layers upon layers of massive regulations, they often miss the little transactions. Basically, like any black market, 
I suppose. So where do the teenage girls with bionic eyes hang out? Where do the retired sisters of battle walk for exercise each morning? Where the hell does somebody go to buy some mother effing Auntie Anne's pretzel bites? Because that is what I want to know. If I'm a time traveler, I go in the future, I'd be like, okay, cool, yeah, flying cars, that's awesome, really, that's really cool. Hey, where's Auntie Auntie Anne's? Or Auntie Anne's? That's what I want to know. Have you tried their pretzel bites? They're pretty good, I'm just saying. So, you're either rich, you're poor, or you're a servo skull, essentially, is what we've gotten out of the lore. It seems like 40k is kind of what the whole Occupy Wall Street movement was always trying to warn us about. It seems like 99.9% of everybody alive is poor, and the other 99.9% of everybody dead is either a servo skull or inexplicably used as filler for imperial walls and roads. Have you seen these terrain things? There's got freaking skulls everywhere. The battle boards they used to sell, and I have a couple of them, the cracks in the ground is just full of freaking skulls. Like, why? Why, GW? Why is this somehow the motif? And uh, the other small portion of the population is crazy rich, living the life that all the other people would never dream of, could never dream of. So I guess what I can assume from all this is that the high-class sections of the city might actually have something like a shopping mall. Meanwhile, the rest of the city might be dotted with little bazaars here and there where poor people sell other stuff to poor people. Probably a lot of skulls is what I'm guessing. So after researching this, the conclusion I'm coming to is that 40K or uh, Black Library has not really filled out this part of it. You know, we know we have... Rogue traders. We have rogue traders that use that imperial coin currency system, and the rogue traders, clearly there's some sort of free market capitalism there, because the rogue traders go from different planets, and they trade, and they spread the imperial gospel, or whatever, but they mostly trade for money. That's capitalism right there. So... If there is no capitalism whatsoever, because the argument could be made that maybe the Imperium controls everything, it's communist or fascist or whatever, probably fascist, um, it seems to me like there is some sort of free market capitalism, at least in these rogue traders. Maybe if you're a pleb on some you know hive world, you've got no amount of currency, but I don't know exactly how that's going to work. But then again, okay, I'm talking in circles here, but Necromunda, Necromunda does have these hive gangs fighting over resources and stuff like that, and they're kind of the bottom of the barrel. So maybe it really, really is a system where, you know, everybody has a job, they work for the man, they probably don't get paid, or they get paid an extremely little amount, and then they have to vie for resources between each other, and all the poor people are just constantly fighting, the rich people live up in those towers, or spires, I think they're called, in Necromunda. But... Then it's interesting to me because I'm like, well, if the, this doesn't seem to make any sense. Now, I'm sure one of you will probably write in and say there's a Black Library book that, uh, you know, deals with this sort of thing. But it seems to me like if there's rogue traders that have free market capitalism and very little oversight, then when they buy and sell between different planets, do they never go back to the Imperium? Like, they never go back to Imperial planets? And the reason why I ask that is, if there's no free market capitalism on Imperial planets, then why would they ever go back there? Because you're buying and selling things, clearly, because you want to, you know, buy low, sell high, that sort of thing, and make profit, and then you can use that profit to buy other things. But if the Imperial planets have no free market capitalism, then you would never, ever, ever go back to them. Because you, A, couldn't buy from them, unless it was black market, 
and B, you couldn't sell to them, I guess, unless it was black market, but then the market would suck. Like the black market, all the poor people would be part of the black market, not the wealthy people. So the wealthy people seem like they do whatever the hell they want anyway. So it seems to me like the only black market that you deal with, if there is no free market capitalism on the, the official side of things, then you're dealing with a bunch of poor people. And that's not good for business, generally. You didn't, you didn't travel 75 billion light years or whatever on a round trip over to, you know, Tal Prime or wherever to get these keychains with little kids' names on them just to drive all the way back over here and then, oh, I'm selling to poor people for a nickel. Like, it, doesn't, it does, just doesn't make any sense. So, hopefully, one of you guys can figure out exactly what this is. Do they have shopping malls? Do they have Jimmy's Shoe Palace? Do they have dominoes? Like, I just don't... It seems on face value that everything is government-controlled and nobody has any control over everything. But, on the flip side, if that's the case, the rogue traders don't make a whole lot of sense because they would never again interface with their planet in a lucrative way. But, also... They're, each planet is very different. I mean, sure, you have hive cities and things like that, Necromunda and other planets, but then there's also, like, ag worlds and stuff. Like, what do you do on an ag world? It should be farms and, and things like that. And I'm sure all planets have a city, or a couple cities, or the megalopolises, or whatever. Then, what is life like there? Like, I've read before in researching this that the planetary governors are basically the king of that planet. As long as they pay their imperial tithes, in soldiers or resources or whatever that the Imperium asks of them. They're pretty much completely left alone. They can do whatever they want, they make whatever rules they want, use whatever currency they want on their planet, and just rule as they see fit. They've been told that some of the planets are more like medieval, where they have, you know, like, knights and, and horses and stuff like that. They're like low technology. And then other ones are like really high technology. And it really just depends on who the planetary governor is and what they value and how wealthy the planet is. So maybe, just maybe, Becky with the, uh, oh man, what's that phrase? Becky with the long hair? What was it? Becky with the something. I don't know. My memory's garbage. But Becky with the bionic eye, right? Her and all her servitor friends go to the local mall and they get like an, you know, imperial slushy or whatever. And uh, I'm sure it's Soylent. I'm, I'm positive that's it. It's a Soylent slushy for sure. I'm curious. There's got to be some sort of bazaar or market or something like that for the average person to do. And then if they do buy things at that market, is it purely barter? Or do they use the local currency? Is there like a local market? Sure, you got to work for the man, but then you can buy things otherwise. I, I just don't know. I, I'm, I'm curious how that goes. Are there lots of soup kitchens? It's just an interesting idea because you never, ever see it depicted in any images or battle reports or lore or anything like that. So I am assuming there's a Black Library book out there that one of you guys can point me to because the internet doesn't seem to have any information on actual civilian life other than speculation. So... Thanks for listening to the PimpCon Warhammer podcast. Thank you to all my sexy, beautiful, good-smelling patrons on Patreon. And thank you to our lovable friends at GameAt.eu for sponsoring the show. And I will see you next week.